0: Welcome to Storytelling with Data, the podcast where listeners around the world learn to be better storytellers and presenters with best selling author, speaker, and workshop guru, Cole and naflik We'll cover a wide range of topics that will help you effectively show and tell your data stories. So get ready to separate yourself from the mess of 3D exploding pie charts and deliver knockout presentations. And with that, here's Cole. Hi, this is Cole. Thanks for tuning in. I am busy gearing up for our new 10-week course. It's actually been really fun to plan because we get to dive deeper into every topic than we typically do for a single thing. I was realizing just this week that most of the stuff I've been doing lately has been relatively short in our presentation, conversation, or podcast. In the course, we get to spread things out over a much longer period of time and offer a number of ways for people to learn and explore and practice. We'll dive into a different topic each week. This will start with a live lecture from me, which is also recorded for later viewing. Then there will be supporting assignments each week that includes reading, watching videos, tackling exercises, and yes, even listening to some podcasts participants will also undertake a course project of their choosing that allows them to synthesize and apply everything they learn. The excited energy I'm feeling for the course actually reminds me of the feeling that I had when we were just starting out with the Storytelling with Data podcast, planning and recording. You're doing something new, putting it out there to see whether other people are going to value it. (laughs) There's definitely a vulnerability that goes along with this. But that early uncertainty, I think, probably makes it feel even more rewarding when something does land well with an audience. With the podcast, it's been so fun to watch our listenership grow over the years. It's been a great new way to share our lessons and everything that we're continuing to learn at Storytelling with Data. And the course is going to be another way of doing exactly that. We'll actually be starting out by focusing on feedback which, coincidentally, was the topic of my very first Storytelling with Data podcast. So we thought it'd be fun to replay that initial podcast here in case you missed it the first time around or would like a second listen. The importance of giving thoughtful and constructive feedback hasn't changed in the three plus years since we recorded this episode. If anything, giving and receiving feedback is even more important today. That said, in the time that's passed since we recorded, I've found new ways to talk about feedback and coach people, both in how to ask for and provide helpful feedback. I'll be rolling all of these learnings into the 10-week course. If you're interested in learning more, you can do so at storytellingwithdata.com slash workshops. As a special benefit to those listening, if you want to enroll, you can use the code PODCAST10, uh, that's PODCAST10, during the registration process for 10% off the listed price. You're welcome to use that on the 10-week course or on any of our upcoming virtual workshops. With that, sit back and enjoy this replay of our very first Storytelling with Data podcast episode, The Art of Feedback. Be sure to listen to the end to hear my updated response to a listener question on recommended data viz reading. Hope you enjoy. Show and tell your data stories. So get ready to separate yourself from the mess of 3D exploding pie charts and deliver knockout presentations. And with that, here's Cole. Hi, I'm Cole. And I focus on telling stories with data. Today, you are listening to my very first podcast. I'm guessing if you're here, it means you might be familiar with some of my other work. Perhaps you follow the blog or have read my book. And the podcast is going to be a way for me to really put a voice behind the data and concepts for communicating with data. The focus of our podcast today is going to be on giving feedback. Through this, you'll get a sense of some of the things that I've been up to recently uh, on the blog, discussions I've had at workshops and behind the scenes. We'll also tackle reader Q&A, where we'll talk about when and why we should use graphs in the first place, considerations for dashboards and reporting, and I'll also outline some DataViz 101 resources. When it comes to this podcast, I'm really trying this out. I want to see what sort of interest level there is for this medium and the type of content that I want to talk about. And I'll definitely be iterating over time and welcome your feedback on that front. And really, any sort of feedback here will be useful. Everything from, this is great, keep doing it, to, hey, that was awkward, maybe rethink that next time. Or here's some content that I'd love to see in a future episode. Uh, All types of feedback would be great. And you can provide that by sending a note to feedback at storytellingwithdata.com. Speaking of feedback... Giving feedback is something that's come up for me in a lot of different ways lately. Uh, I think there is immense value in being able to both give and receive feedback when it comes to refining our data visualizations and the way that we communicate with data broadly. And so today, I want to talk about some considerations when it comes to giving feedback on data visualizations. And I'll do this through a few different examples and scenarios that I've encountered lately. First off, I want to talk about the Economist Hurricane Challenge. Uh, this was one that I ran on the blog back in September. And actually, early on in September, I found myself riding the subway in New York City. I was there for a couple of weeks doing some work. And as I'm riding the subway, I'm scrolling through my feed on Feedly. And I come across one of the Economist daily charts. And it was titled, Hurricanes in America Have Become Less Frequent. And I spent some time staring at this graph, realizing I had some gripes with it, uh, but not really the time to do anything about it, to fully critique it or do a makeover at that point. So I thought, well, I'll turn it over to you, my readers, uh, and have you share your views and makeovers. Now, let me back up and explain a, a bit about what the graph looked like. So this was a stacked bar chart. The y-axis, the total, uh, showed the number of hurricanes that had hit the U.S. Uh, And it showed this over time, which was the x-axis component. And then each bar was split up by the category of hurricane one through five. And the response that I received to this was much more than I anticipated. So I received 60 makeovers uh, with readers raising a ton of what they believed were issues with the original graph. And I thought it was interesting to see the tone of many of these notes that came to me. Uh, you know, The economist did this wrong or they made that bad decision. And some people were pretty brutal which it's actually incredibly easy to be when you're at arm's length like this. It's easy to forget that there is a person or a team who made the various design choices for a variety of reasons. And I actually didn't think about this so directly at the time, but was reminded of it very clearly when The Economist emailed me. So Alex Selby Boothroyd, who is head of data journalism at The Economist, wrote me. Dear Cole, thank you for organizing your fascinating How You Would Visualize Hurricanes Challenge. Here in the Economist Data Journalism Department, we've pored over every entry with the same degree of interest and healthy debate that our original chart seems to have provoked. As with all data visualizations, we had to make some compromises. The incomplete final decade was, as many people noted, unsatisfactory. Instead of leaving it to our readers to correct for the shorter time period, in hindsight, we could have used five-year groupings, like Robert did, or 15-year clusters, like Todd did, to maintain consistent spacing on the x-axis. We could, of course, have improved other elements as well. With more time, we could have incorporated every 2017 hurricane, up to and including Hurricane Irma, while accounting for the fact that this year's season is not yet over. As Sharon noted, we could have considered hurricane damage, too, or looked instead at accumulated cyclone energy. That said, these data cover all Atlantic storms, and we wanted to focus just on those that made landfall in the United States, as our article was pegged to Irma hitting Florida the previous day. As a description of what has occurred in the past, we thought that the headline and subheadline on the story, hurricanes in America have become less frequent, but the most damaging storms now appear to be slightly more common, was accurate, and we felt that the trend lines helped show this. But it's interesting to note that for every visualizer who used trend lines to reach a similar conclusion, there was another who loudly dismissed them as misleading, or was equally vocal about something else we had done wrong. It is heartening to be part of a data visualization community that has such a strong voice. All the best, and do let me know if we can be involved in any future challenges. So I thought it was awesome to see this note and the attention from the Economist Data Journalism uh, Department, and it's a pretty amazing balanced response when you consider that they could have come from a very defensive position, given that we have these 60 makeovers of different people outlining different issues uh, or potential issues with that. And yet, the way I read it, at least, it came across as a really balanced response. And I also thought it was great the way that Alex uh, highlighted the constraints, right? The, The fact that they made compromises and trade offs uh, for a variety of reasons. And that's one of those things that when we remake data and redo data visualizations, we, just, we have no visibility into those constraints that the person originally visualizing the data faced. Uh, and I was reminded of this same idea recently. Uh, I was following a heated Twitter exchange uh, between a few folks, uh, Alberto Cairo, Elijah Meeks, and Stephen Redmond. By the way, one of the things I think is just fascinating about Twitter, so Alberto's in Miami, uh, Stephen's in Dublin, Elijah uh, is in California, right? I'm here following from California. So just the way that applications like Twitter allow these conversations to happen in a way that would otherwise never be possible. But so they're, they're having this debate, and uh, Alberto links to an article at one point. And the article is one back from 2015 by Fernanda Viegas and Martin Wattenberg. The article is called Design and Redesign in Data Visualization. And in this article, they talk about this idea of popular criticism and how the data visualization field has become ripe for drawing this popular criticism in a way that you really can't do uh, for other mediums, right? If you think of a, a book or a movie, someone can critique those things, but they can't actually remake them from start to finish, right? If you're critiquing a book, maybe you rewrite a sentence, but there's no way you're going to go in and rewrite the book. Whereas in data visualization, this actually happens, right? If you can get to the underlying data set, anybody can remake a graph. And so in many ways, this is good. It's a way that people can learn, but it can also be problematic. And and that's what the article really focuses on, and some of the ways that this can be uh, problematic. So, one of the things they highlight is how hindsight can be 2020. And to illustrate this, they look at Edward Tufte's criticism and remake of data from the Challenger space shuttle disaster. So it's it's easy knowing what the important things were uh, in that disaster to now go back and make data visualizations that make that brutally clear. Whereas at the time, that wouldn't have been possible in the same way because that information simply wasn't known at that point. Now, another way that this popular criticism can be problematic is in the removal of context. And this really reminds me of the hurricane makeover and that feedback that we heard from Alex, uh, that those who are doing the makeovers and providing feedback, they just have no visibility into the constraints that those visualizing the data faced. And Fernanda and Martin write, design is compromise." And they also outline some general guidelines, simple guidelines for data visualization critiques. One, maintain rigor. Secondly, respect the designer. And thirdly, respect the critic. And I think tone and framing become so important when we're giving feedback on data visualizations so that this is coming from a place of helping or friendly debate and not um, not criticism in in the sort of negative aspects of that word. In any case, excellent article. I'll make sure that we link to it. And I consider it a must read for anyone who is creating or critiquing data visualizations. I actually had a recent request for critiquing a data visualization. Uh, This came from a follower who's been working at a company where he says, historically, we've had this really data-heavy presentation done by our marketing team. He shared the the presentation with me, and it had uh, a lot of donut charts, a lot of color. And he says, I recently hired someone, though, to specialize in data visualization, and I bought him your book. And so now this new data visualization guru has revamped the ongoing version of the presentation. So stripped out the clutter, made some other changes based on lessons from the book. And he says, we just delivered the presentation for the first time, and we were met with mixed feedback. Uh, but we want to make sure what we're doing is grounded in best practices, and not just based on someone's personal preference. And so he asked me to weigh in on this. And so th- this scenario, it would have been really easy to jump to something like, you know, here's all the reasons that you're right, as I see you applying concepts from my book, and here's all the reasons that they were wrong you know, with their donuts and their color. But I actually don't believe that's necessarily the case, uh, and I definitely don't believe that's what would have been most helpful for anyone in this scenario. So actually, in this case, I brought it back to audience. If your audience doesn't like your approach, No amount of telling them why they should like it or why they're wrong for not liking it is going to help. Rather, for me, this means we're missing something that our audience needs. And so going back to... I mean, the the different things that we think about when we're crafting visualizations and we're following best practices. And I actually wrote uh, what some of this looks like from my perspective in a blog post back in September, uh, my guiding principles, and outlined the different things that I'm thinking about when I am creating uh, and critiquing data visualizations. And the last guiding principle, the final one, is that audience trumps all else think to be successful when it comes to visualizing data in a business setting, we really need to be thinking about our audience first and foremost. And if there's something that they are confused by or resist, then we need to revisit the design and revisit the way that we're doing it and and think about what our audience needs are and how we can make sure those needs are being met. So I think when we can do that, then we lower the chances of, of having that sort of resistance. Now, when it comes to giving more specific data visualization feedback, I encounter this scenario in the workshops that I do regularly. So when I go in to do a half day or a full day uh, workshop with a team, I'll, I'll typically solicit examples from the team ahead of time. And after we go through the core lessons, then we look at some of the group's specific work and we discuss how we can apply the lessons that have been covered to uh, the folks' specific work, their work and their colleagues' work. Now, as you can perhaps imagine, this can be a very sensitive topic, right? This is someone's work that now a room full of people are critiquing. And this is in the absence of those constraints, as we've talked about, and without actually having to do any work, right? They're not even remaking the examples. They're just outlining some gripes and maybe making some sketches. Now, the way I frame this up is it's not an exercise in ripping anything apart, but rather thinking about how we can discuss and how we can apply the lessons that we've covered to make the selected examples even stronger. And I tell people, you now have discerning new eyes when it comes to looking at graphs. And this tends to be both a blessing and a curse. Uh, But I challenge folks to use those new eyes that they have for graphs, Not only to critique, because as we've seen, that's easy to do uh, when we're looking at other people's work, but also critiquing, right? Applying those same new eyes to their own work. Because I think by being harsh critics of our own data visualizations, we really put ourselves in a place where we can continue to refine them and ultimately make them successful. Now, that said, doing this sort of critique and especially receiving feedback can be hard. We get attached to our work. There was a recent article from UX Planet on Medium called The Subtle Art That Differentiates Good Designers from Great Designers. In the article, they list five differences between good and great designers. And the first one that they list really resonated with me. They said, for great designers, a critique is just a critique, not an insult. this is one of those things that's really easy to say and incredibly hard to actually uh, put into practice. We get attached to our work. And as we do, we lose the ability to objectively see. Right? When I've put together a data visualization, I know where I want my audience to look. I know the things that I want them to connect. I know what I want them to walk away with. Uh, the challenge, though, is making all of that tacit stuff in my head visually clear to my audience so that they look at my graph, they see it in the way that I want them to. Now, one of the ways that I get this sort of feedback is from readers, where I'll post something on the blog, and then I'll have people who volunteer makeovers of my makeover or provide feedback. And now, in some cases, this can be challenging, right? Because as we've talked about, those doing makeovers, they don't necessarily have any visibility into the constraints that we face. Um, Or for me, you know, the specific lesson maybe that I was trying to highlight through a particular makeover. Um, but this is also an incredibly helpful part of the process, uh, both for me, as well as a person providing the critique, because it forces us when we critique to articulate our logic in a way that not only makes sense to us, but that will make sense to someone else, which can help us think through things, uh, in new ways. Um, this actually happened recently, uh, this, uh, reader feedback, uh, in a blog post or after a blog post that I had posted, um, So it's back a couple weeks ago. The blog post was titled, A Tale About Opportunity. And in in the blog post, I was looking at an example from the pharmaceutical industry, where the original graph um, was a 100% stacked bar chart, where the focus was... uh, the, the bar on the left was the number of patients who had been diagnosed with a particular illness. And then the bar on the right represented the patients taking uh, this drug for the particular illness. And then the illness itself could be divided into different severities, mild, moderate, severe. This was a case where we could actually switch the way that we were categorizing, uh, and instead of making the primary categorization, those diagnosed versus those taking, and then the categorization within that, the severity of the disease, by actually breaking it out by the severity of the disease, first and foremost, and then within each of those stages, looking at the number of people taking the drug out of the total diagnosed, meant that we could flip it around and really highlight the opportunity. So doing it this way allowed us to see not only who's taking the drug, but who else could be taking the drug. And to visualize this opportunity, I showed empty space that was outlined. And so imagine a horizontal stacked bar chart where the bottom series is dark blue. This represents the number of patients currently taking the drug. And then stacked on top of that is a white series that's outlined in that same dark blue, which represents the portion who've been diagnosed with the disease disease, but aren't currently taking the drug. So those who could be taking the drug. And then in the final version, I had some annotation on there, listed out some percents um, in that same dark blue. And the percents were meant to describe the white portion of the bar that was outlined in dark blue, but it was probably 20 minutes after I posted the blog post that I had a couple of reader comments saying, hey, that's confusing because when I read it and I think about it, I can figure out that i meant to tie those percents to the white portions, but when I first look at it, I want to tie the blue numbers to the blue portions of the bars. This is one of those things that once somebody points it out, yes, of course, that was a silly thing to do on my part. Of course, it's natural people are going to want to connect those things that look similar. And I didn't even see it, though, when I was doing the graph because I knew where I wanted my audience c- to connect those pieces. And so in this case, I used that reader feedback to actually go back and refine my final visual, and added another one at the end that showed the opportunity outlined in black and change the percents that were meant to describe that opportunity to be in bold, black text. So this was a case where I was able to use some reader feedback to make the example even more effective. And now for me, it's rarely about this being better than that when we offer a critique or provide feedback, uh, but rather more about optimizing trade-offs is we've discussed pretty much every decision we make when we're designing data visualizations in the slides and pages that contain them, these decisions involve trade-offs. So for me, it's about understanding what those trade-offs are and making smart decisions in light of those things. So in sum, giving feedback is a hugely important process of helping everyone be better when it comes to visualizing data. And I I do believe that when we provide feedback, we should be respectful and consider tone and framing, right? As we've discussed, we're critiquing someone else's work. And that person likely faced constraints that we have absolutely no visibility to. But I think also, as designers of data visualization, we need to have thick enough skin to recognize critique and take it as such, take it as critique, not as an insult. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on this topic. Uh, Please comment on the blog post, and we can continue the discussion there. Let's shift gears now, though, and spend some time on reader questions. So I announced this podcast through a blog post a few weeks ago, where I talked about the fact that my kids ask a ton of questions, and that I've come to recognize over time that this is a really important part of their learning process, and was recognizing sort of simultaneously that I receive a ton of questions from readers and those who follow my work as well. So I thought a great segment in the podcast would be take some time to answer some of those questions. So uh, I want to answer some of the questions we've received to date. Also, if you have a related question that you would like to pose, you can send that to askcole at storytellingwithdata.com. Matt says, my question is very basic. Essentially, when should I even be creating a chart as opposed to just relaying my big idea through text? I work in digital advertising, and when I'm delivering insights to clients, it's usually text in one or a couple of sentences. I can understand when a chart is useful if you're dealing with a large number of variables and you just want to focus on one thing. But for these relatively simple insights, would you even recommend making a chart? It's fascinating to learn the art of beautiful and useful charts, and I just want to make sure they keep being useful to the audience. So this is a great question, and I love the thoughtfulness behind it. And I think any time we think about showing data, we should ask ourselves the question of, do we need to show this data? just because we have data doesn't mean we necessarily need to show it. And I think for me, the sort of things that I want to consider when it comes to whether I should be showing data, uh, one is just being aware of the value of visuals for making data accessible. So helping someone understand or see or remember something. Uh, Images are powerful, graph being one sort of image, in their ability to prompt recall. So if there's something in the shape of the data or there's something about showing it that's going to help you reinforce the message that you want to make, I think there can be immense value in pairing the visual, the graph, with the verbal, the story. So when I do that, now not only can my audience remember what they heard, but they can also remember what they saw. I think another important component is certainly your audience. Is your audience going to need data in order to trust you or be convinced? Uh, If so, then you want to think about how you can weave that data directly into the story that you want to tell. So I think ultimately graphs uh, use them when they can help someone see or understand or remember and when they're going to be useful for your audience. Brian says, my question for you is how can I can apply your principles and methods when creating and designing dashboards? I work for a large hospital in Boston, and lately most of the requests I get are to create dashboards. The issue is that the users consuming them want everything on it. I'm struggling with this because I know from experience and following your principles that a lot of the information they want is unnecessary. Please help. So I tend to draw one uh, important distinction, which is the distinction between exploratory, right, what you do to understand the data when you look at it this way and that way uh, to find the interesting insights, and explanatory, which is once you've found the interesting insights and you want to now communicate those to someone else. Now, for me, dashboards, any sort of regular reporting, these fall more into the exploratory space where dashboards can be super useful at putting a lot of data into a small space where I can scan through and I can look to see where are things in line with my expectations or where are they not in line with my expectations? Where might there be interesting things that I can further dig into to get at the story? Now, one thing to keep in mind is just because the dashboard is how you find the interesting takeaway or story does not necessarily, and I would say in many cases, does not mean that the dashboard is going to be the best way to then tell that story to your audience. So I think the dashboard can be incredibly useful for getting at that story. And then when you have something specific you need your audience to know or an action you want them to take, then you actually want to take that data out of the dashboard and do a lot of things that I talk about in the book and on my blog to make that story both visually and verbally clear. Now, when it comes to dashboards and designing effective dashboards, one resource I'll recommend is a book that came out earlier this year called The Big Book of Dashboards, and this is a collection of um, about 30 different dashboards across various industries, um, so it can be nice just to flip through and see ideas for how people have visualized different uh, data, and then the actual content is the author's commentary about what works well and what they might have done differently had they been designing the dashboards and goes through some alternative Um, alternative, um, or alternate, uh, visuals there. So it's a nice thing to be able to flip through to get ideas, but then also, um, some great, uh, great, uh, content to help develop understanding of best practices. Narul says, my question would be how to get people in the organization to think more analytically and not generate reports for the sake of generating reports. I'm in the IT team doing data analysis, which can be a bit tricky since the business teams are used to having IT do a quick fix when something is broken and not so much for process improvement. So this actually makes me think back to my time at Google and where I think part of what differentiated the analytical team that I worked on there was that we saw ourselves not only as analysts, but also as coach and consultant to the folks who we were working with to provide data and drive insight and action. So I think one of the challenges for anyone who works with data is you show some data and then somebody asks for more data. And then they ask for more data and more data and more data. And you can get this death by data. I think sometimes this comes about because of a false hope on the requesters side that more data is going to answer the question for them or tell them how to act when really at the end of the day, it's a person always who's making that decision. But one question that I found myself often asking that would be useful, and you can think about what the right framing is depending on your role and uh, the person with whom you're speaking, but it, help me understand how this new data is going to help you make a different decision or a better decision. And you can frame that in the with the tone of, you know, help me understand so that I can better meet your needs. But oftentimes as you can get your audience or get the people requesting data to articulate that and really think through their logic for asking for more data, sometimes they can talk themselves out of the need for more data, uh, which can be a useful way to cull uh, this death by data that we've talked about. There actually was a sort of related example at a workshop recently where we were discussing and there was actually this aha moment of understanding that uh, you could see happen during the discussion and it was where the team recognized that they, they've they historically seen themselves and see, seen their role as being primarily to inform and the discussion was about how they can move past that uh, both themselves but then also in the perception in the organization to not just being there to inform but there to actually influence and drive action. And I think there's a really important pivot that happens when as analysts, we think of our role in that way, not simply to inform, but to influence and drive action and help people both understand things better, but understand them in the context of now how they can make changes or how that reinforces what's been happening from a business standpoint. And I think for me, this is a place where analytics often stops short, where it's easy to show data and outline some findings. But the challenge or the risk in doing so is our audiences are faced by a ton of data. So when we give them more data, it's a very easy reaction uh, for the audience to say, oh, that's interesting, and then move on to the next thing. Whereas if we take it to that next step and say, not only here, audience is the data, but here is how you should act based on this data, or here is a menu of potential actions you could take based on this data, it gives our audience something to react to. And that often starts a conversation, even if they disagree. Uh, And that's a conversation that often gets missed if we stop by simply showing data. So I think always as an analyst thinking it through to not only what do I want my audience to know, but what do I want them to do with that? And how do I make that clear? And so it's this combination of being coach, consultant, helping people understand when and why they need more data, but then also helping them think through the actions and really think of our role in providing data is not simply to inform. It's to help someone understand something better so that they can make a smarter decision or take Take a better action. Alice from Melbourne says, I want to ask a very simple question. If someone like me needs 101 material on DataViz, what resources do you recommend? Are there any books that are considered DataViz Gospel? So I was scanning my bookshelf in uh, figuring out how to answer this one. And I think one that I'll recommend is Donna Wong's The Wall Street Journal Guide to Information Graphics. This is uh, its short, it's accessible, very easy to navigate, and covers the basics. So different types of charts, uh, but then also primers on how to do the math correctly. Things like how do you calculate percent change. Uh, so this would be a good one for anyone just getting started and wanting some basic guidance. Uh, another book one of my early influences was Stephen Fuse's show me the numbers so this is more textbook like uh, covers graphs and tables but then also goes beyond that and, and gets into visual perception and introduces the idea of helping your audience know where you want them to look in what you show When it comes to data viz gospel, certainly Edward Tufte's The Visual Display of Quantitative Information would fall into this category. This is a beautiful and inspiring book, uh, perhaps a little less pragmatic than some of the others that I've mentioned. Uh, I will also mention my book, Storytelling with Data, which combines data visualization best practices with storytelling for getting information across effectively in a business setting. That was my response from three years ago. I was reflecting on whether and how my recommendations may have changed since then. Today, I think I'd emphasize Tufty even less. While his books are beautiful, they aren't super pragmatic. And I'd also add some recent publications to the list. Specifically, and this first one isn't focused on data viz specifically, but I'd recommend it to anyone who's working with, analyzing, and communicating with data. And that is Avoiding Data Pitfalls by Ben Jones. In it, you'll likely recognize some of your own mistakes and learn things to be aware of when you're working with data Another book recommendation I'll add to the list is Better Data Visualization, which is John Schwabish's latest book. His others are great, too. In it, he covers more than 80 types of graphs, explains them, uh, goes over use cases, illustrates through examples. Both of these books will help you build your data and graph vocabulary as well, uh, which then helps you when you're working with and communicating with others about data. When it comes to learning, while getting foundational knowledge is great and and books will help you do that, really the best way to hone skills is to practice, try things out, learn from successes and failures. So along those lines, I'll add my latest book to the mix, Storytelling with Data, Let's Practice, which expands on the first book through additional content, examples, and exercises that you can use to sharpen the way that you communicate with data. If you have a question you'd like to hear answered here, you can email askcole at storytellingwithdata.com or even better, turn to the Storytelling with Data community. This is an online resource where you can practice, get feedback, and get your questions answered. You can use the search functionality to discover articles and examples, or browse conversations, start your own to get a specific question answered. That allows you to do so uh, from me, from the Storytelling with Data team, and the broader community. Uh, and We all get richer answers as a result of that. You can find all of this at community.storytellingwithdata.com. With that, I'll mention one final time our upcoming workshops and 10-week course. Use the code PODCAST10, that's PODCAST10, during the registration process for 10% off listed prices. I hope to see you virtually at one of these upcoming sessions. Thanks very much for listening.